It's Thursday, March 10th, 2022. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon, and tonight we present a dramatic reading of chapters 4 and 5 of my magical adventure novel, The Tomb of Prester John. This will be of particular interest to those seeking to understand the origins of the Gnostic Mass and its roots in Valentinian and Simonic Gnostic traditions. Doc Rowland, Slady archaeologist partner, a belly dancing former scarlet woman, channels both the spirits of Jesus' Mary Magdalene and Simon Magus' Helen in her quest to find the tomb of the medieval warrior priest king while being stalked by her former lover, Khalil Ibn Iblis the Gnostic priest turned terrorist assassin. The Tomb of Prester John is a novel that delivers magical secrets in fiction form. In this episode, you will discover that Gurdjieff's Enneagram is the entrance to the Ninth Gate, that Jehovah is Popeye, and that the Gnostic Mass was originally Christian. So come with us on a quest for the Tomb of Prester John. Now, in these chapters of the Prester John story, we discover the secret of the Barbarossa letter in Berlin. And then we fly on to Istanbul and thence to ancient Theatria. But before we reach Jezebel's church, Sophie Iskandar recalls a confrontation with Paul the Apostle, who challenges her faith by implying that she has been channeling Simon Magus's Helen rather than Christ's Mary Magdalene. Doc Rowland tries to mediate her spiritual crisis, and the adventure continues. Chapter 4, The Letter from Prester John. And we have a little preliminary poetry. Yvam indeed is gone with all its rose, and Yamshid's seven-ring cup where no one knows, O Markiah. Room service brought breakfast at 7 a.m. while Sophie was still in the shower. Coffee, Danish, orange juice, and the Berliner Morgan Post. Doc was already dressed and ready for the museum. Wearing the obligatory tweed jacket with the leather elbow patches, button-down ivy league collar, and a rip-striped necktie. <clears throat> Jackie pants and chuckle boots, he was obviously professorial. Sophie emerged from her suite in a beige business suit and a royal purple neck scarf. She was obviously Phoenician nobility. Their appointment with Professor Klaus Hossifer at the Ethnic Museum was at 10 that morning. So there was time for, for a continental breakfast. Doc, always the gentleman, rose and held her chair at the small table and poured her coffee before sitting back down. Guten Tag, he offered. Danke, she replied. You said that that letter to Barbarossa that they have has a reference to the Golden Fleece. Well, you know, the letter to to the Emperor of Byzantium, the only surviving copy of of the Prester John letters, doesn't mention it. The copy that the Pope supposedly received 
that, that the Pope supposedly received is since the spirit. Yes, she said, but this Barbarossa letter is what put the Russians on the scent. What if it's a fake, Doc wondered. Well, the carbon dating, the paper, and the ink analysis all check out to the, 7th, to the 11th century, she might reminded him. Yeah, but the reproduction you and the Russians saw could have been photoshopped. Well, you can use your magnifying glass on the original this morning, Sherlock, she quipped. Elementary, my dear Watson, he quipped back. Ten minutes later, they were leaving the hotel lobby and boarding a cab on the way to Museum Island, one of the cultural centers of Western civilization, a project begun by the Prussian kings in the 1830s and completed in the 1930s. God, we didn't bomb it like we did Dresden, Doc muttered, as their cab pulled up for the imposing portico of the Ethnological Museum. They climbed the steps and entered the reception lobby, taking the lift to the second floor where the medieval gallery was located. As they entered the hall, they were hailed by their host, Dr. Klaus Hausifer, Ph.D., professor of medieval history from Quadranga University. Guten Tag, he greeted them as they approached the display case he was guarding. Good morning, Klaus. Sophie responded in English. This is my colleague, Dr. Marion Rowland from Stanford. Call him Doc. They shook hands. Klaus was a tall, bearded, middle-aged German academic wearing gold-rimmed bifocals. Well, here it is, he said, gesturing to the ancient parchment in the glass display case. How is your Latin? I can read it, Doc said. As he leaned down to peer into the case, the letter was penned in beautiful, Carlaginian script, obviously written by a European in church Latin. Doc translated it in his mind as he read, Johannes Presbyter, by the omnipotence of God and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of Kings, ruler of rulers, hopes for the well-being of his friend Frederick Barbarossa, Emperor of Germany, and wishes that the grace of God be with him in the future. Well, Doc thought, this is the Barbarossa letter, no doubt about that. And the Latin was archaic enough to match the other documents from the same time period that he had translated. If the reference to the Golden Fleece was included, they were in business. If not, then someone had created a forged letter based on a reproduction. He would keep on translating. Ten minutes later, he found it. Reading and translating. Our palace is founded on gems, and gems are its walls held together by the best and purest gold, serving for mortar. mortar, The roof is fashioned from the clearest sapphire stones, and then, Thesaurus Noster, Continent Verum Bellus, Orum Colci Antiqui, Fuit Semper in Custodia Nostra. Our treasury contains the true golden fleece of ancient cultures. It has always been in our keeping. Bingo, Doc declared, rising to give Sophie a high-five salute. He turned to Klaus. We need a full-size photostat of this document. Well, you can pick it up at the office downstairs on your way out here, Roland, Klaus said. Glad to be of service. How did you anticipate we'd need it? Why, then I knew you had the lamp, Klaus answered. Doc wondered what else he might know and who else might know it. 
but he kept silent and offered polite thanks and goodbyes. By noon, they were back at Brandenburg Airport for their flight to Istanbul. Once again, Doc's diplomatic identification got them through customs without a luggage or personal search. Colonel Nuri Renda of MIT, Turkish National Intelligence Service, would meet them at the airport and shepherd them through customs at that end. Unfortunately, he would also be their driver down to Akazar, the modern city surrounding the ancient ruins of Theatria. Doc and Sophie were expected to cooperate with Colonel Renda, the version of their expedition, which was a search for evidence connecting the ancient Phoenician purple cloth and dye industry with the same business and craft activity in Theatria. Turkey was an American ally and a member of NATO, and they might they might help us with biblical archaeology, but not with a hunt for treasure on their soil, unless they recovered the treasure. So Doc decided to let Sophie and Renda do most of the talking. Colonel Renda was waiting in the access tunnel as they deplaned. A short barrel of a man with a ferocious black mustache and an MIT badge with a photo of Camille Ataturk on his breast pocket of his black suit jacket. Nazir Mirabadassan, Dr. Renda, Renda hailed them. Colonel Renda, Doc responded with a salute. Or should it be Major Roland, Renda returned the salute. Not this time, Offendi, Doc said. It's just Doc. Call me Nuri, then. Come along. Let's get you through security. Half an hour later, they were comfortably ensconced in the passenger cabin of a government limo having lunch. Kebabs and baklava washed down with champagne. It was less than 100 miles from Istanbul to Akazar as the crow flies, but they would have to skirt around the Dardanelles so the drive would take the rest of the afternoon. While they lunched, Sophie answered Colonel Renda's questions about their project. Well, the Phoenicians, my people, were famous for their beautiful purple cloth, she said, as she unbuttoned her jacket and pulled out her purple and gold neck scarf, giving the colonel a tantalizing glimpse of her untethered charms before recovering her modesty. Doc gave her a stern look. Renda was not a man to play games with. She winked back as if to say, I know what I'm doing, and she continued. The Murex mollusk from which this precious dye comes lives in the coastal waters of the eastern Mediterranean. The dye was produced in Sidon and Tyre as early as 1500 B.C., and in Carthage before the Punic Wars. After the Greeks Hellenized the Levant and Asia, a Phoenician cloth dyeing industry started up in Theatria, which is now Akazar. They even had clothiers and dyers trade guild with a patron god or goddess. We are searching for the origins of this commercial enterprise. We'll investigate shell mounds, museum artifacts, inscriptions, and surviving records. And the Christian Bible, Renda, Renda interjected. The Book of Acts, there was a Theatrian commercial outlet in Philippi across, across the channel in Macedonia, uh, Sophie confirmed. What else do you know, Colonel? Colonel Renda gave her a cynical look. I know there's been a vehicle following us for the past hour. We've given them several chances to pass, but they're still following. I want to know who that is. Well, so do we, Doc said. Colonel Renda took a hand, hand mic 
from the consul and barked a series of orders in Turkish. He then instructed the driver to pull off the road onto the shoulder and stop. We'll wait. It won't be long. My men are we're following them, and we have a helicopter, Renda explained. And while we're waiting, I want to talk about this man you're working for, this Turkish Sabbatean, Isaac Zorogan, who calls himself Victor Polescu. He is the founding director of that mythic organization you two belong to. Problem with Victor Polescu, Doc asked. I have a problem with Zorogan, Colonel Renda growled. And so does every country in Eastern Europe. He's a financial terrorist and a communist. President Reagan would not have tolerated him. Well, the New World Order was a Bush neocon thing, Doc muttered. That's when Victor sneaked in. Sabbateans are Satanists, classified as terrorists in my country, Colonel, Ray, Colonel Renda barked. They steal our children and drink their blood. Oh, come on, Yuri, that's an old wives' tale. The Romans said that about the Christians. It's tabloid stuff. They made, oh, they made me eat my baby. We have evidence. And it's going on in America, the colonel declared. But Victor is not a Sabbatean. He's a Roman Catholic. He converted to communism back in 939. So he could join the Nazi party. Sabbateans infiltrate all religions, especially Islam. We're rooting them out here in Turkey. Doc remained silent on that. It reminded him of the Spanish Inquisition turning on the Sephardic Jewish converts to Catholicism. And yet, he had always had a bad feeling about Victor Pulescu, especially in Mythtech's agenda. Their projects never seemed to be in the national interest or in the interest of preserving Western civilization. They're trying to establish their empire in the Ukraine, the medieval Khazars, the original Zionists. It's all in their Talmud. That is your new world order. Oh, I'm not going to argue with you, Nuri. I think you have several conspiracy theories mixed up. I personally don't like Victor or his politics, but I try to keep politics out of my work and just do my job, just like I did when I was a soldier. Colonel Renda's open radio channel squawked in Turkish. They have our stalker. They are, being, they are bringing him to our car, he said. Open the side door. Let's get out and see what we've caught. The wop, 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 whopping at the rotor blades and a cloud of dust announced the arrival of a large military gunship. When the dust had settled, a team of Turkish Special Forces troopers hustled a black-garbed, handcuffed prisoner toward the limo. The man was bearded with a scar on his face. He flashed Sophie a wide grin. It was Khalil Ibn Iblis. Hello, darling, he called. This man knows you, Dr. Iskandar? Colonel Renda asked. Well, unfortunately, yes, Sophie replied. You'd better tell me about it, Renda said. It's a long story, she replied. We've got all afternoon. They'll fly him to headquarters in Ankara and hold him there for my interrogation tomorrow morning. Brenda instructed the troopers, and they dragged Khalil back to the helicopter. Doc shook his head in dismay. Oh, this is all we need. At least he's not Chinese. Well, later that evening in their rooms at the Phaeton Hotel in, in, in Akazar, a few minutes after Sophie had finished her account of her relations with Khalil, Nuri Renda's cell phone rang. That was my office calling. Khalil has been released. What? Doc snorted. He's on Interpol's most wanted list. He must know somebody very big, Renda said. Sophie gave Doc a knowing look. Oh, he does. Indeed, he does. 
Chapter 5, In Theatria, Preliminary Poetry. They say the lion and the lizard keep the courts where Yamshi gloried and drank deep. And Barum, that great hunter, the wild ass, stomps o'er his head, and he lies fast asleep, Omar Khayyam. Late that afternoon, they were driving by the ruins of the ancient white castle from which Thyatria got its name, now silhouetted against the golden orb of the dying sun and framed with cloud streaks of glowing purple and red. That sunset is symbolic of the conflict between the Phoenician and Turkish dyers in Theatria, Sophie observed. The Phoenician royal purple from the murex shell versus the Turkish red from the matter root, she explained. I wish I could stay with you to learn more about this, Colonel Renda said, but I have to leave you here. I'm going to anchor it to get to the bottom of this release of Ibn Iblis. Then I'll launch a manhunt for him on a charge that will stick regardless of who he knows. Thanks, Murray. Keep him off our back, Stock said. As they pulled up to the hotel, Colonel Renda left them a parting gift. The fate in the hotel is not a bed and breakfast, Colonel Renda said. I suggest you take some of our baklava and a bottle of champagne for tomorrow morning, he said, as they pulled up in front of the hotel. Their rooms in the Phaeton Hotel in in, in Akazar offered a balcony view of the ruins of ancient Theatria. No room service, but they did have coffee. What do you expect for $22 a night, Sophie commented. They opened the champagne and drank to Jezebel, refrigerating the bottle and pastry for the morning. Now give me a briefing on this operation tomorrow. I want the whole story. Was Mary Magdalene in the Murex dye business? Well, of course she was. So he said she was Jezebel. Well, no wonder Jesus married her, Doc replied. She bankrolled his church. Oh, don't make it sound so shoddy. Remember, Mohammed's wife Fatima was a camel merchant, and she financed Islam. I thought Mary was the woman crowned with the sun, Doc said. Well, she was that also. Revelation is not sequential, Sophie replied. Peace be upon them all, Doc added. Let's take it from the top, Scheherazade, he prompted her. Well, let's get comfortable first, she suggested, beginning a leisurely striptease culminating in framing in the framing of her body art masterpiece in a black silk kimono without a sash. She curled up on one of the twin beds. Doc stripped through his skivvies, sat on the other bed, and began his pipe-loading rituals. Say on, my lady, he said. It has reached me, O auspicious king, that the ancient Anatolian city of Theatria was a commercial center of cloth dyeing, manufacture and export, in the first century of the Christian era. There were two rival establishments in this trade. The Phoenicians, who used their traditional purple dye from the Murex shell, and the Anatolians, who employed the matter root for a more reddish dye, and both are referred to in Revelation. The woman arrayed in purple and scarlet, Revelation chapter 17, verse 4. The dye workers all belonged to a trade guild whose patron goddess was Venus, the Roman version of Astarte, and an Anatolian patron sun god, Tyrimors. The two rival companies were owned by wealthy widows, who were both officers in the dye workers' guild and in the new Christian church. The Phoenician widow was Mary Magdalene, who was called Jezebel in the book of Revelation, and a spirit-possessed damsel in the book of Acts, chapter 16, 14 through 18. The Anatolian widow was Lydia, also mentioned in the book of Acts. 
Mary's rival and a convert to Christianity under the influence of Paul of Tarsus. She had a commercial outlet and a home in Philippi across the Aegean Sea in Macedonia. Everything I have imparted thus far can be confirmed from research, but from this point outward onward, I must rely on my channeling of Mary herself, which I intend to resume with your help at Combs tomorrow evening. As if offering a preview of coming attractions, Sophie rolled toward Doc and presented a vision of the hermetic caduceus from Luna to Saturn before veiling her temple with the, with the black silk kimono and continuing. The proctor of the church in Theatria was Valentinus, a Carthaginian, Phoenician, and a Gnostic philosopher, an early follower of Paul of Tarsus, who had switched his Christian allegiance to Mary Magdalene. Paul had exerted a strong early influence on Valentinus, but when the Carthaginian met the widow of the Christ and heard his teachings from her own lips, he realized that women had souls and incorporated the sacred marriage into his Gnostic version of Christianity. He and Mary together tried to convince Paul that the former Pharisee despised women as the origin of sin and considered them soulless appendages of the male species. Paul refused to accept Mary as the widow of the Savior and reminded Valentinus that even if Magdalene had been the master's concubine, she had still been possessed by demons and could not be trusted. Valentinus reminded Paul that he had never seen and had been with Christ in the flesh or heard his teachings and that Mary had received first hand. He and Mary would return to Theatria and preach the sacred marriage as the true sacrament of Christianity. Jezebel, Paul named her. You would preach fornication, adultery, and blasphemy. He turned to the Lady Lydia, business rival in Theatria, whom Paul had recently baptized a Christian. Surely you do not concur in this, sister. Lydia had turned loving eyes on Paul. We will remove the idol of the Sidonian abomination from the guild hall, my lord. Only fish will be served at banquets, and no licentious behavior will be permitted. Valentinus and Mary agreed on removing the idols from the guild hall, but only if both images were deposed. They had previously justified keeping Venus and Tyremos as counterparts of Christ and Mary. Paul had said that the statue of Tyremos could be baptized to represent the Christ, but that the abomination of the Sidonians had to go. In deference to Mary, Valentinus refused. You will read the Lord's displeasure in this, I promise you, Paul declared. You have written in my husband's name too long, Paul of Tarsus, Mary replied. It is time for his true gospel to be preached and written, and we shall preach and write it, even as it was revealed unto us by the Lord himself before and after his untimely passing. You would make a morbid, bloody sacrament of his death, where we intend to make a sweet and loving celebration of the uniting of the two souls in marriage, even as it was reunited with him and myself in the wedding of Cana. We have heard a similar story from Simon Magus about the harlot he found in the Tyrian brothel. He called her the fallen thought of God, Paul muttered. You are from Tyre, aren't you, Mary, he asked. Mary was disturbed by this. Valentinus put a protective arm around her. 
He answered for her, She's from Magdala in Galilee. She's of the line of King Hiram of Tyre from the days of King Solomon. Was she ever called Helen or the fallen thought of God? Paul's expression was predatory. Mary looked into Valentinius's eyes with an uneasy expression. Do I have to answer these questions, she asked. Well, he is our bishop, Valentinus reminded her. I have been called the fallen thought of God, she said. Did you know Simon Magus, Paul asked. We both knew him, she answered. You and Valentinus, Paul questioned. She shook her head, myself and the Lord Jesus. Valentinus added, I know Simon through his book. Valentinus with a vicious stare. Who gave you a copy of that rubbish? He demanded. I did, your grace, Mary admitted. I thought it was beautiful. Jezebel, Paul muttered, giving Mary an even more vicious look. And that ends my recollections, O auspicious king, Sophie concluded, with tears welling in her eyes. I don't know who I am. I don't know who I was, she cried like a lost soul. Doc crossed over to her bed and gathered her in his arms. Don't get confused, Sophie. Remember, you told me that Khalil had you channeling Simon's Helen. You're just getting your archetypes mixed up, Doc explained. Sophie wasn't buying Doc's Jungian platitudes. She wanted Freudian lechery. Paul was right. Khalil was right. Crowley was right. I'm a whore. The sacred marriage is an orgy, and I am what I am. You're not Popeye. Dr. Clared. Why would I be Popeye, she asked. Because he says I am what I am, and it's all that I am. They both started laughing, sputtering Popeye jokes, until they were almost hysterical. She wrapped her legs around him and declared, he's strong to the finish because he eats his spinach. He's Popeye the sailor man, Doc finished. Sophie kissed him, and he responded. She hugged him close and whispered in his ear, thanks for not taking me too seriously. We needed a good laugh. She snuggled against him and whispered again, Do you know the secret of the ninth gate? Well, I thought it was that engraving of the woman sitting on the seven-headed dragon in, in Reverti's book, Doc said. She sat back on her haunches and arched her back facing him, looking down at him from between the lifted mound of, mounds of her breasts. It's the Enneagram, see? You mean the Enneagon, Doc corrected, looking at the nine-pointed star tattooed in purple ink, on her mom's venereous. Look again. It's an enneagram. Nine points open at the bottom, the ninth gate, she declared. Doc realized that there was no point in putting her off any longer. Well, let's finish the champagne tonight, he said. An hour later, they were both in her bed under the sheet smoking her cigarettes in the American after-sex ritual. Sophie was crying again. What's the matter now, Doc, Doc asked. I am what I am, and it's not funny, she snuggled, and the sacred marriage is what it is. Well, I was sprung to the finish, Doc said. Oh, stop it, she snapped at him. I'm being serious. About what? Gnostic Christianity? Yes. How much of Valentinius is Simon, and how much of Mary's gospel is Simon, and how much of Mary Magdalene is, si is Simon's Helen? Now you stop it, Doc snapped at her. We could play this game all night, anthropological scrabble. Mary has seven powers. Simon has seven powers. Santeria has seven powers. Hori astrology has seven planets. And so does Kabbalah and so does Jesus, for Christ's sake. Well, the sacred marriage was supposed to unite soulmates, she said, but instead it perpetuates ancient pagan temple prostitution. 
Well, I agree with you there, Doc said. But in ancient times, the temple prostitute represented the goddess. That was what Valentinus used as his model. And remember, Simon used the Garden of Eden as a macrocosmic model for the feminine womb. But you do believe that marriage unites and completes the divided soul, don't you, Doc? She, she asked. Well, ideally it should. But in reality, most marriages are not undertaken for the kind of love that unites two halves of the same soul. Valentinus knew that only God and man shared the creative process and that only in unison could a man and a woman emulate God and hence the sacred marriage and the union of souls. But like so many other beautiful ideas in early Christianity, it's been corrupted and perverted. Do you think we can ever sanctify it again? Doc kissed her on the nose. Well, let's sleep on it, he suggested. The next morning, over breakfast and coffee in Baklava, Sophie outlined the day's activities. We could walk to the museum through the old Roman Forum. The museum used to be a junior high school, but it became a museum in 2012, primarily archaeology. They had a lot of material from the Roman period. Our contact is Iona Erzan. She's a grad student for Istanbul Tech, interning here at the Akazar Museum. She can get us into the catacombs under the old church. She's expecting us to meet her at the museum at 10 o'clock this morning. So bring everything we need in your backpack. I'm bringing everything, whether we need it or not. We can't leave anything in the rooms with Khalil on the loose, Doc said, even clothes. Poisoning garments is the latest terrorist tactic. Sophie looked at her watch. It's a 10-minute walk from here to the museum. We better get going. And this is the end of Chapter 5. Now, let me clarify this thing and provide some, uh, some sort of ad-lib footnotes. Much of what we just read is based on the Book of Revelation and, and also the Book of Acts. And you'll find that Paul and, and, and Lydia and, and Jezebel really did interact and, and very, very close to, to what uh, Mary was channeling in this. And this is a very real dilemma for her. And it is a, it, it is a, very, a very real dilemma for us in interpreting, in interpreting the sacred marriage of Valentinian Christianity because what Paul is suggesting and what Mary is really realizing is there is a great deal of similarity between Simonian Gnosticism, the Simonian Gnostic scheme, the seven powers, and Valentinus. And the best way to, to get to the bottom of this and the best explanation of it is Hippolytus. And I'm fortunate enough to have an, an old 18th century uh, book on the writings of Hippolytus. And poor old things falling apart, but I can still read it. And Hippolytus, he he was one of the church, one of the one of the founding church fathers, and he was a critique, like Arrhenius, he was a critique of the Gnostics, and he says definitely and, and, and shows how Simon's seven powers actually are the are the origin of the thirty aeons of Valentinus, and those thirty aeons down to us as the as the Enochian thirty acres. And this this all all fits together and we still we, we still don't know uh, how much of Mary Magdalene is mirrored in, in Simon Magus's Helen, which which he based by the way on the Helen of Troy. And 
she was, in fact, Helen of Tyre. And, of course, Mary, although she came from Magnalis, her family was from Tyre. And, and as we know from the Bible, Jesus spent a lot of time in Tyre. And uh, anyway, there's a great deal of meat in the story I just read. I encourage you to take another look at the book of Revelation. Take another look at, at Jezebel in the book of Revelation. And take a look at what was going on in, between Paul and Lydia and the, and the whole dye, the whole dye and cloth industry over there. And this is, a, this, this is as I say, a fascinating subject. And next week, we're going to rebroadcast a podcast interview that I did with the Fort Worth Masonic Lodge. And it has a lot of good information about our magic and also about the relationship of masonry to, to magic. And that this podcast, this is a lengthy podcast, so it will be a, almost a two-hour broadcast next week. Those of you who are in the Masons, and, and, and I think you'll find it, find it very, very interesting. And, and I have all even even non-Masons, it will give you, give you an idea of of the connection between masonry and magic. So until next week, good magic, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.